Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University, podcasting today from Stanford University's Hoover Institution. My guest today is John Kogan. John is the Leonard and Shirley Eli Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution and a professor in the public policy program at Stanford University. He's also the author of Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, Five Steps to a Better Healthcare System, a book he's written with Glenn Hubbard and Daniel Kessler. John, a lot of people say you can't trust the market to handle health care. After all, look how badly it works. Costs are out of control. Millions are uninsured. What's your response to that claim? Well, health care is, in fact, uh, very similar to every other commodity, although people don't uh, perceive it to be so. Uh, people somehow think of health care as being special. But ask yourself, is health care any less important than food and shelter? And the answer is no. Um, what's different about healthcare is the way we consume it and the way we purchase it. And what I mean there is that we don't see ourselves as spending our own money for most of our health care. Unlike, say, food or that's right. summer housing. That's but. right. Right. Most of our, <laughs> most of our health care is purchased through uh, third-party payments. And what I mean by that is most of our health care is paid for by our employer, uh, our insurance company, uh, the government, not by ourselves directly by making out-of-pocket payments. And it's very different than, of course, it is for food and shelter. So in the, so in the case of food, if I, if I want the sirloin steak rather than the hamburger, I have to pay more. Right. But in the case of health care, it's often not my dollars are going to make that that choice. Of course, ultimately they are our dollars, yeah. right? But for that particular service, no. Um, you might pay 20 cents on the dollar and the insurance uh, company or your employer or the government, in the case of Medicare, uh, would pick up uh, the remaining uh, part. And that's changed over time? Uh, yes, it has. In fact, it's gotten, I would say, I'll use the term worse. Uh, individuals are paying for less and less of their health care directly uh, through um, uh, out-of-pocket payments and relying more and more on insurance. Now, it's okay to rely on insurance for very expensive, catastrophic illnesses. Unexpected events. Right, right. Uh, but for routine care, um, what happens is as people uh, use, uh, perceive themselves as using somebody else's money to finance their routine out-of-pocket expenses, they end up purchasing uh, more and more out of pocket, more and more health care uh, that has relatively low value. Low value in what sense? Low value in the sense that the costs are very high and the contribution to your overall uh, health care is very, very low, or that its ability to produce a positive health care outcome is very, very low. So normally you'd say, well, that, that's bizarre. I mean, why would somebody pay a lot of money to get very little in return? But you're suggesting that there's a high cost, but you don't pay a lot of money. For you, the cost is relatively low, so you're buying something that's relatively unproductive, that's but still worth it because of this implicit subsidy from the third party. That's exactly right. And why does it produce what we might think of as inefficient health care? Well, Milton Friedman uh, once said, nobody spends somebody else's money as wisely as they spend their own. So and, true. And well, that's what we're seeing uh, in healthcare. One of the deepest insights, I think, of human behavior. And uh, that alone, that insight by itself, is a spectacular guide to public policy uh, design. It's, um, Isn't a, it? A lot of things we do wrong come from ignoring that, that principle, I'd say. That's exactly right. And, and, and that's why our healthcare costs have grown so much uh, and why uh, people perceive uh, that uh, although the healthcare system is phenomenal from a scientific standpoint, uh, at the delivery level, uh, it's not working right and people are frustrated and upset. When you talk about it being fantastic at the technological level, a lot of the higher costs that result from this incentive problem are beneficial. We do get good quality care in many dimensions, right? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. There's a lot of people that say, well, we should try to separate the good uh, technological advances from the bad. And what I say is, let's let the market uh, do that with the proper proper incentives. It's very interesting about technology. 
Healthcare technological change is very, very different than technological change in just about every other area. In every other area, we've seen technology that raises quality and technological advances that reduce costs. Right. In healthcare, we see technology that raises quality, but we rarely see technology that reduces costs. And I think the third-party payment system that we have that dominates our healthcare system in the United States is a is a, in part responsible for that. It's very interesting. If you look at parts of healthcare that are not covered by insurance, such as cosmetic surgery or LASIK surgery mm -hmm. for your eyes, yep. uh, what you've seen there is a tremendous reduction in the cost of those services and those procedures as a result of technological advance. And we don't see that same kind of cost-reducing technological progress in areas of healthcare that are dominated by insurance. Could be just a coincidence, Could. but <laughs> it's probable that it's due to the incentives there. Hercule Poirot would say <laughs> there are no such things as coincidences. <laughs> well, I'm going to stick with this issue because I think it's a really interesting when I hadn't thought about it. There are some technological advances that have lowered costs, not in the normal sense of which we think of technological advances, say making a computer uh, faster or having more storage. In the case of, of healthcare, pharmaceuticals have sort of done an end run around this in, in substituting for surgical procedures that might be necessary, preventing things that might require more expensive things. So there's an example where there's a technological advance that did lower costs, but that's not what you're talking about. You're really thinking about, say, devices that look inside your body. Right. So you start with um, a, ham a rubber uh, hammer, you, you bang it on somebody's knee, you thump somebody's chest with your, with your fingers, the doctor does that, and you learn something. We advance, we get x-rays, we advance, we get MRI, we get CAT scan, we get better and better. So we do get these improvements, but you're saying within a technology such as MRIs, we don't see the cost reductions we normally see in other areas of industry. Is you that right? Put it, you put it very well. Uh, Better than I have. So, well, <laughs> doubt that, but I, I want to think about why that's true. Now, why would that be true? Why? One answer could be, well, it's just something different about healthcare. It doesn't lend itself to these kind of improvements that work in, say, cars or computers, cameras, toasters, clothing manufacturing, food production, all these areas where it gets such improvement. What's di what is different about healthcare? Is it is it a technological? Uh, aspect of healthcare, or you're suggesting is something different? I think it is something different. I think it is the fact that individuals, since they're not paying uh, or don't perceive themselves as paying for um, the services they get, do not demand cost-reducing technological advances. And there's no return, therefore, necessarily for the manufacturers to, to, to make those, those improvements. There's also a, you might call it a bells and whistles phenomenon, where small improvements in quality that are very costly that a market would normally reject because they're not worthwhile in this area don't get rejected for the reason you're talking about yeah, right. and that really brings us to an interesting point about this cost increases and i just want to emphasize again i know both of us agree on this we're not saying that just because we spend more in healthcare that's bad as we get wealthier as society, certainly, like many other things, we're going to spend more money on certain areas, less money on others. In healthcare is an area where I think we would predict in economics that is what's called a luxury good or where people are going to want to spend more on it as they get wealthier, a normal good uh, is the technical term uh, in that case. But that's not our complaint here. Our complaint is that it's the bang for the buck. And this interesting example of technology really interacts, I think, with another point you raise in your book, uh, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, about defensive medicine. So if the legal environment punishes um, mistakes in a very uh, uh, aggressive way, which has a plus, which is we don't want people to take, uh, we, we want people to take care, we don't want negligence, but if the legal environment overly punishes people and encourages people to practice defensive medicine, technology will always be attractive. In fact, will be almost uh, improvements in technology will suddenly become uh, advantageous to a practitioner 
on legal for legal reasons, but not for medical reasons alone. Talk about that. That's very true. Is that a long enough question for you? Sorry about that. <laughs> well, let me try to give you a short answer to yeah, the long apologize. question. Um, it is very true. Uh, and it's also the case that if a technology exists and, uh, and, a, and a physician is on the margin as to whether this might be uh, an appropriate procedure uh, to use test a or cast or whatever on a, on a, on a patient, um, the existence of, on the one hand, uh, a uh, badly out of sync uh, medical liability system and two, the fact that the patient is not paying for much, if anything, of, for the cost of that test, leads the physician then, of course, to order up uh, the test. Uh, and so both factors uh, uh, combine to produce a fairly significant incentive uh, for, vis for physicians to order up tests and procedures that he might not do so if these markets were functioning uh, as they should. And, you know... We don't even think it's strange anymore, but if you're in a medical care environment and somebody runs a test on you, you just sit there. Most people just sit there and take it. They don't say, well, I don't want that. That's right. Sometimes it's, they certainly don't ask, how much does yeah, it cost? <laughs> which is unlike any other, as we talked earlier, unlike, say, food, you don't go to a restaurant and uh, all of a sudden you find a bunch of desserts on your uh, sitting in front of you, and they say, well, I didn't order that. Well, we thought it would be good for you or bad for you, whatever. Uh, let, let's get to the root of this. So you, you mentioned earlier that third-party payments are substantial and increasing in America over the last uh, few decades. I think in, in your book you used the figure of five-sixths. That is only one-sixth, about 16 cents on the dollar, is paid for by the patient. And, of course, it varies a lot by patient. So some patients are getting everything paid for. A lot of procedures then are perceived by the patient correct, rationally to be free, imposing the costs on others. How do we get there? For, how do we get to that world? What's, we don't see that functioning in the markets for, for food or, or computers or other things. Why do we have this world where there's so much third-party payment? Well, there's another interesting fact uh, before getting to, your, uh, getting to the answer to the question. Another interesting fact is that Nine out of every ten privately purchased health insurance policies in the United States are purchased through an employer. And the two statistics, the nine out of ten health insurance policies that are purchased through an employer, and the fact that uh, only one in every six dollars of medical care spending are paid for by the individual, go hand in hand. Um, that's a weird thing. I don't get my car insurance from my employer, you certainly right? Certainly don't. Uh, I don't get my life. I, I might get life insurance, a little life insurance for my employer, but most of us buy those things privately on a competitive market, regulated somewhat by state, sometimes federal regulation. But how do? What's the cause of those? Well, uh, most economists think that the the cause of it lies in a government policy blunder uh, that was made uh, nearly um, 60 years ago. And the policy blunder was to make all medical care uh, purchases that are made through an employer to be excluded from taxation. So if you purchase medical care through your employer or through an employer-sponsored insurance plan, it escapes all taxation. If you purchase medical care directly on your own or you buy an insurance plan directly on your own, you have to pay for that uh, purchase with after-tax dollars. And so the tax code created an enormous financial incentive for individuals to buy insurance through their employers, to buy as much of their health care plan through their, uh, their health care services through their employer. And so it has contributed not only to the nine out of every ten health insurance plans being bought through employers, but it also it has also led to individuals to buy plans that have low copayments or low deductibles, that is, that cover a broad segment of services and have the insurance plan pay for ninety percent, ninety-five percent of the cost of the services that are covered. And you're suggesting without that tax treatment of, of uh, the employer-provided health care, 
uh, I would not choose that on my own. I would I would choose to have a higher deductible uh, and certainly a, a bigger out-of-pocket expenditure per per unit. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The estimates that the uh, economists have come up with about the importance of the tax policy for driving health care costs are um, uh, there's quite a wide range to them. But I think the modal estimate, uh, the the one that most economists would agree to, is that the tax code alone uh, accounts for 20 percent of the higher costs of insurance, or 20% of insurance costs. So if we got rid costs. of that provision, we could lower insurance costs by 20%, expand, uh, make, make insurance more attractive to, to right, a wider group right, of people. Right. Now, what's really interesting about uh, the, the work that's been done in this field, and some of which we report in the book, is that um, much of the uh, increased health care consumption that people buy because they have low deductible insurance, doesn't contribute to an improved health care status for the individual. So, so you get more health care, but you don't get healthier. Exactly. And so how do we know that? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, back in the 1970s, the United States conducted um, or finance uh, a, uh, a, uh, a social experiment in health insurance, and it was run by the RAND Corporation. The Rand Corporation enrolled thousands of families into one of several uh, experimental health care plans. Some of the health care plans had low deductibles and low copayments. One of them had free care. Uh, so long as you paid the premium, uh, you would get free care. Other plans had high deductibles and high copayments. And they watched these families over the course of several years and observed how they altered their consumption of health care services. And what the RAND researchers found was absolutely fascinating. People that enrolled, that were enrolled in the high deductible, high copayment plans ended up consuming significantly less health care services or significantly fewer health care services. However, by and large, for most of the population, there was no difference in health outcomes among those that were enrolled in the higher deductible and higher copayment plans and had spent less than the people that were enrolled in the free care plan. And so it has led to the conclusion that much of what we purchase because we have a low deductible, low copayment plans is not really health care that's leading to uh, better, uh, uh, better health status uh, for us. And so when it comes to the implications for public policy, that, that means that if you did change the tax treatment of, of health insurance, you shouldn't expect it to have much of an effect on the level of health of people in the United States, but it would contribute to a very sizable reduction in the cost of health care. Giving us more resources to spend on other things that we value, including life better. Including higher valued health care. Now, I want to digress for a moment because I think you, you touched on something very important that, that you often hear uh, people misunderstand. You said that in this RAND experiment, people who faced lower prices consumed more health care. And the economic jargon for that would be a downward sloping demand curve. As the price falls, people consume more or something. I think people a lot of time make the mistake of implicitly assuming that the demand for health care is vertical. Health care is something you need. And what they have in mind, I think, is that you know, you're, you get in a car accident and you need surgery to save your life and you'd pay anything for that. And, of course, in that situation, price would not be an important determinant of whether you got health care or not. But in most or many situations, lower prices do encourage people to, quote, use more, get that extra test, uh, get a procedure that might improve health a little bit but might not, and that what, what we might call discretionary Healthcare is a much larger percentage than what we have in mind, but the, there's a lot of demagoguery and ideology here where people like to scare people into thinking healthcare is, you know, you need it, it's, you've got to have it, and so we can't let the market determine it. But you're suggesting this RAND uh, study clearly showed it. it's, a, it's a much more complex issue. So the current situation, the current tax situation, encourages people to pay excuse me, to consume more health care than they might in a less 
uh, in a different world where they were responding to prices more directly. What other factors are involved? One factor you talk about in the book is uh, is state regulations. Talk a little bit about how state regulation of healthcare has uh, driven up costs with little or no uh, health benefits. Well, increasingly over the last 30 years, uh, s- uh, state legislatures uh, have uh, imposed um, requirements on insurance companies uh, to um, cover uh, specific services uh, and procedures uh, and types of providers. And so many states have, um, have laws that require individuals who are firms that offer insurance to include chiropractic care or acupuncture uh, and so on. Um, those types of mandates, and if you look across all states of the Union right now, there are 1,500 individual mandates or requirements imposed on insurance companies to provide certain services. But that's good, John. Isn't that, a, isn't that a plus? I mean, sure, that way more people have more, they're, they're sure they've got this thing covered. They are sure they've got this thing covered, and they are sure they are only paying, they perceive, maybe 20 cents on the dollar for it. And that's one reason why we, we have these mandates. But the fact is, is that the mandates tend to drive up the cost of insurance for everyone. So if I have no interest in acupuncture and decide it's not for me, I still have to pay for the option of using it down the road. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Or take one that's a little bit more sensitive. Uh, maternity care. Mm-hmm. In California, we have a, a requirement that insurance companies have to offer uh, a plan. Have if to they include in their plan, right? Yeah. They have to have um, uh, maternity uh, benefits. Um, that raises the cost of insurance for everyone. Um, but for particular groups, it really raises the cost of insurance. Uh, for women aged 30 to 34, are the estimates that we have. Uh, indicate that that mandate raises the cost of insurance for the typical woman in that age bracket by 50%. Wow. It's an extraordinary number. And then you have to wonder, well, yes, people, many people would benefit from this mandate, um, but you have to recognize that many people are paying the cost of this mandate. And there's a fundamental question that, that has to be asked, and is, do you want... Uh, a politician uh, determining what benefits uh, you're going to have and what you're not going to have in your insurance plans, or are you willing to let the market uh, do that? Uh, we seem to, in the United States, have gone this road, uh, down this road towards having uh, the politicians do it, and the politicians are not only responding to the general uh, uh, public on some of these matters, they're also responding to special interest groups, sure. uh, special types the of providers, yeah. and so forth. <laughs> but that's not the only area where, um, where uh, uh, we've seen an increase in regulation. We've seen a lot of states adopt rules that limit the ability of insurance companies to offer lower prices for their products. How's that work? Well, what, they, what they're concerned about, what the regulator is concerned about, is that some small businesses might have some employees that are very high cost, uh, and that would generate a high premium. Uh, and so they want to protect those uh, small employers from that high premium. And so they will slap a price control. Most states have these in their small group market. They will slap a price control, the maximum price that any insurer can charge uh, a small group, a small employer. At the same time, though, they then slap a minimum price uh, on all small employers. That is, an insurance company cannot offer a, a plan below a certain price as a way of paying for the protection that they're trying to give to the, uh, to the company that might have high costs. What are the consequences of this? Many small businesses simply faced with this high price at the lower end say it's not worth it to have insurance. And so they don't offer their employees insurance. The result is that the good risks are absent from the pool of insured, right. and that further drives up the cost of health care. Well, let's, let's focus on that for a minute. Let's start with the first point you made about the, uh, the ceiling, the price cap. So you're saying if I'm a small business, I have a small group of employees, I don't have a big risk pool to spread risk, a big pool to spread the risk over, and I may have a couple employees with very high-risk conditions or, for whatever reasons, use the system a lot. So I'm going to have high 
insurance company to make it worthwhile for them is going to want to charge me a high price for my employee's health care. So to protect the employers, the employees in that business, the state puts a cap on. And that's going to discourage, that by itself is going to discourage the provision, I assume, of health care to small businesses by the insurance companies. You got it. I can't profit. That's I can't make, exactly I can't make right. cover my costs. Why is it, we're, we're opening a Pandora's box here, but why is it that a small business would be offering insurance that's spread over its employees alone. Why don't we see wider markets for health care the way we see in, say, life insurance? Let's, let's take life insurance. Let's say I work at a firm where everybody's really old. Well, if, if the company had to insure me and everybody's old, well, life insurance is going to be very expensive, right? But that's not the way life insurance... Now, they'd, of course, price it according to age if they could, but it's sort of what we'd be doing in the healthcare market by using such a small pool. Why would we do that? Why aren't there national uh, health insurers that pool my risk with thousands of other people instead of a small one small company having its own pool? It makes no sense. So what, what's going on there? Well, it's a very, that's a very, very difficult question as to why we have this peculiar arrangement. But again, here's a case where government policy has at least contributed in some part uh, to the problem. Um, we have a system of regulation of insurance in the United States that is state by state. Um, many decades ago, uh, the United States Congress decided, decided the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution notwithstanding. That's it's never stopped them before. <laughs> that's well, right. In recent that's decades. Right, that's right. Um, that, uh, that each um, state uh, should have its own uh, insurance laws, or could have its own insurance laws, and there'd be no interstate commerce in insurance. And so if you live in South Dakota, uh, you cannot buy an insurance policy that's uh, approved in Indiana, but not approved in South Dakota. And so one of the uh, policies we have recommended in our book is that individuals should be allowed to purchase insurance from any company that has an approved product in any state. That is, we should allow for more of a national market for health insurance. Uh, and that would tend to increase, in certain states particularly, tend to increase the size of the pool uh, that's available uh, to, uh, to pool risk uh, uh, for, uh, for insurance. So we think that makes makes an awful lot of sense. Uh, give individuals more choices, give individuals more opportunities to get into a, a bigger pool. Um, so I think that's a very, very important important point. And when it comes to regulation, what we're saying is don't have a com you don't have to have a completely deregulated market. What you have to do is recognize that when you overregulate our healthcare markets, insurance markets, the way we have, driving up costs in California by as much as 25 to 30%, you end up pricing many individuals and small employers out of the market. And that then creates a vicious cycle in insurance. The good because risks are not part the, of the pool. Yeah. It also creates another problem that is in the popular press uh, today, which is the problem of the uninsured. We now have 40 million people that at some point in time during the year go without insurance. Part of the reason we have that problem is we have over-regulated the markets, failed to recognize that the costs of regulation price people out of the market. And so what we're recommending is to go back in the other direction, look at the costs uh, that regulation is imposing, um, and see if it makes sense uh, to deregulate the market a little bit uh, to get the, uh, the cost down and increase the pool of insured people and reduce the number of people who lack uh, health insurance. That, that problem, the uninsured, I think the media treats it a little bit um, uh, in a confusing way. Just because you don't have health insurance doesn't mean you don't have access to health care. We really don't care whether people have insurance. What we care about is whether they have access to health care. And, and health services. Unfortunately, some of those folks don't have health insurance. The way they do get their health care is a very ineffective way through emergency rooms and other things that are high cost, again, costs imposed 
uh, on other people. Uh, it's not it's not well known, but uh, I think what is well known is that if you open an, an emergency room, you have to take everybody who comes in. What's not well known is how many people show up who have no intention of paying, and those funds never get collected. I know that when I was here at Stanford 20 years ago, Stanford's emergency room in the hospital here, I think, collected about 50 cents on the dollar of every dollar that was charged. I don't know if that's typical. Do you have any understanding? Of yeah, the, uh, there's an excellent paper in Health Affairs a couple of years ago uh, that looked at uh, spending uh, on the uninsured. Uh, and what they found was very interesting. Um, we spend, or the, uh, the society spends, about $100 billion a year on health care for the uninsured. $100 billion. $100 billion, all right? But then you start breaking it down. Half of that is paid for by the individuals themselves. Just out of pocket, out of pocket. A clinic. Or... Right, right. And so now we're down to about $50 billion. The federal and state and local governments provide an awful lot of charity care through um, special federal payments to uh, inner city hospitals. You have county hospitals. Uh, community health clinics. Uh, the government spends about, governments combined, spend uh, about $40 billion on charity care for the uninsured. Mm -hmm. And so what you're left with is no more than $10 billion, some estimates for even less, $5 billion, uh, that is imposed by the uninsured on the oh, private health care system. Uh -huh. And so, as you said, when people use emergency rooms, they're using a less efficient form of care. They're getting the care. Because it's not an emergency. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. People should, uh, yes. A mom with a sore th kid has a sore throat, think it might be strep, can show up in an emergency room and try to get a test. That's right. That's right. And the costs of that are imposed on the, on the private health care system, certainly. Um, but the, you have to keep in mind that the, the, the magnitude of these costs are not that high Very when considered against the total amount sure. of, uh, of uh, private sector uh, health insurance expenses that are incurred. The, the uninsured might account for less than 1%, perhaps as much as 4% of the, uh, of the costs uh, of, um, of insurance for the typical family today. So this argument that we can reduce the cost of health care by covering more individuals through another government program are just simply wrong. Now, we've talked about some of the problems with the current system. Uh, let's talk about some solutions. Um, one solution, of course, is uh, we need more government. The system's broken, uh, greed's run amok in the um, medical profession, the pharmaceutical companies, etc. So what we have to do is have is have more regulation. Um, we've got experiments about countries that use more regulation, um, such as Canada, United Kingdom. But you would take us in an opposite direction. That's right. That's Tell right. us about what we, you'd recommend. Well, it's, it seemed to us that the first place to look is at the unintended consequences of government policy. And when you, when you find that the unintended consequence of a government policy is to raise the costs far greater than the value that the policy provides, let's undo that policy. Uh, and let's see if, if when we allow markets to work properly, uh, we will get the costs down and we'll get a more efficient, efficient system. So that was sort of our general, our general approach. And we had several specific areas where we had recommended an alteration of an existing government policy, the most important of which uh, I felt, uh, I felt, and I think my colleagues feel the same way, is in tax policy. Um, as I said, the tax system that we have today encourages people to purchase insurance uh, for all of their health care expenditure, or as much as they can, and purchase it through their employer. So we have an unlevel playing field, uh, tax-wise, uh, between insurance and out-of-pocket spending between buying insurance on your own and buying it through your employer. 
let's level the playing field, we say. Now, there are two ways to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right? One is you can eliminate the tax exclusion, uh, and uh, the other is that you can allow uh, out-of-pocket spending uh, and individual purchases of health insurance uh, to have the same tax treatment uh, as employer-sponsored insurance. Uh, we, uh, being practical men, uh, realized that the chances of the United States Congress eliminating the tax exclusion are slim to none. Okay. Uh, it would amount to uh, your congressman saying, hi, uh, my name's Joe Smith, I'm from the government, and I'm going to help you with your health care costs by taxing your health insurance yeah. benefits that your employers provide. Now, if people understood economics a little bit better, they, they might see the connection between that distortion and, and their higher costs, but Unfortunately, that knowledge might not be as widely available as we'd like. So That's right. you come up with a, with a right. more practical well, well, I should say this. Back in, in the early 1980s, President Reagan proposed to put a limit on the amount of employer-sponsored insurance that would be excluded from taxation. I think it was 5000 or $3,000 at the time. Right. Right? I was part of a, um, uh, an administration group that was sent up to Capitol Hill uh, to explain the policy. And I got up to the uh, the uh, office of a congressman named Jack Brooks, who uh -huh. was uh, uh, a veteran of many, many years of congressional service, Democrat from Texas. And I walked in the door to explain the policy, and he said to me, Ms. Kogan, you don't have to explain your policy. I understand it. He says, let me tell you something. I've been around this town for many, many years, and you have managed to do something that I have rarely seen in all my years. I said, well, what's that, Congressman? He says, you have managed to unite the AFL and the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> and he probably threw me out of the office. Yeah. Uh, so that policy had a half-life of about a week. Uh-huh. Uh, Interesting uh, educational experience. Right. So, Too bad. So, so, Courageous, though. <laughs> and wise, but... I was a young second lieutenant, if you uh -huh. will, you know, uh, uh, not knowing any better. But in any event, um, uh, that policy doesn't seem to, to have uh, much chance of being enacted. So we, we have proposed a really practical idea of allowing individuals to deduct uh, their out-of-pocket payments as a way of putting uh, uh, payments uh, that you make directly for your health care services on a par uh, with uh, payments uh, for insurance. And it's a slightly older and much wiser uh, uh, soldier in those policy wars. What do you think is the political likelihood of that happening? I think it's, it's a actually, great idea. Mm -hmm. I think it's Clever. actually quite quite good. I think it's actually quite good. Um, and the reason I say that, it is the direction that federal tax policy with respect to health care has been moving for about two to three decades now. Mm -hmm. We now have uh, special um, uh, arrangements with employers that permit employers to um, allow individuals to deduct some of their out-of-pocket expenses. Uh, Stanford has such a plan. Many big employers have, have that kind of a plan. There's a new device, a federal device, called health savings accounts right. that allow a means for individuals to deduct their out-of-pocket uh, payments. Um, and so policy has been moving in that direction. We say take it a very, very big step. Once you level the playing field between insurance and out-of-pocket spending, then what you'll see over time is gradually individuals will begin shifting towards plans that have a lower premium and a higher uh, copayment. Uh, and as the effects of those higher copayments uh, become evident, we'll see the growth in the cost of health care gradually and slowly subsiding. We'll see a change in the way technology mm -hmm. uh, progresses, uh, and we'll see a greater uh, tendency towards uh, cost-reducing uh, technology. And so we think that the fundamental problem in health care is the third-party payment system for routine care. The source of that problem lies in the tax code, and it's fundamental to healthcare policy, therefore, to eliminate uh, that, that fundamental uh, tax code problem. And uh, we think it'll have a powerful, long-term effect uh, on the way we consume healthcare in the United States today, and do so in a way that, is, um, that makes people uh, better off. Uh, they'll be able to keep more 
of their income. So we think it makes good policy uh, sense, and it's also good politics. Yeah, it's good politics. I'm going to digress for a minute on this political issue and draw on your knowledge as a, again as a political warrior. Uh, very interesting point you make of that trend over the last few decades of moving uh, toward deductibility. And the reason it grabbed my interest is that politicians like to take credit for stuff, inevitably. They don't like to let solutions emerge that are private and voluntary. They like top-down, hierarchical, imposed solutions so they can wave them about. So they kind of do that, but they do allow market forces in the political world, maybe, what you're suggesting, push us toward a market-oriented, incremental market-oriented reforms. You can't get a global market-oriented reform. You can't just get Congress say, yeah, we've made a big mistake. We shouldn't have been doing all this regulation stuff. Let's clear the playing field and let them go at it. Instead, they say, well, we'll, we'll tweak this and tweak that. And the reason it fascinated me is it really reminds me of what we've done in, in tax policy overall, where economists want to see a consumption tax because the current system punishes uh, savings and, and over makes consumption overly attractive. And it seems extremely hard to get a global tax reform around, through, but we do tweak the system in that direction systematically almost, not, not literally systematically. No one's designing it. But you're suggesting, just something I've never thought about, that that's been going on in healthcare also, really makes me cheerful. I, I really like that. Yes, Do you want yes. to say anything else about that? It's really interesting. Well, I think, it, I think it is very, very interesting, and it's the way democracies work. Uh, rarely do you get a big bang uh, change in policy, global solution. Uh, by and large, what you get is incremental uh, solutions. Politicians are very risk-averse people right. uh, for the most part, uh, and, uh, and so they don't like big bang solutions. What we like about the... Uh, uh, the uh, the policy that we have proposed uh, for tax deductibility for healthcare is that it's based upon a, a large body of of scientific evidence on the how people behave when faced with different incentives. Incentives matter, and they matter big time in healthcare. Uh, and what we'd be doing here is correcting a fundamental uh, uh, incentive that people have towards. Uh, higher uh, insurance for routine care, and hence overconsumption of medical care. Um, a second uh, policy area where we've proposed reform, as I mentioned earlier, and I think this is a very big, big reform, is we would um, allow for a federal market in health insurance. Now, it turns out there already is a, a federal market. It's a very interesting historical development. But in, in 1974, the United States Congress decided that the federal government should regulate pensions. And so they passed a law uh, establishing federal control over pension policy. Uh, states are not allowed to interfere uh, in that, in that, uh, in that uh, realm. One uh, consequence of that policy, that law, was that if an employer self-funded or self-insured his health plan for his employees, that that would no longer be regulated by the states. It would be regulated by the federal government. And the federal government piece this is called? ERISA. The E-R-I-S-A, right? right the stands Employee for Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. So that was, here's, this could actually be one of those rare examples of a positive unintended consequence, right? That was a that was a pension regulatory scheme, but you're saying that had some implications for health care benefits. That's exactly right. So now every large employer in the United States that has the ability to self-insure, Stanford University does, George Mason I'm sure does, uh, virtually every university does, um, now has a choice. They can opt to be regulated in the federal market or they can opt to be regulated in the set of, of uh, state markets uh, that their employees uh, are in. Uh, and the vast majority of large employers have opted for, to self-insure and fall under the uh, federal regulatory market. No law, however, is without its bad unintended consequence. Yeah. And so it's interesting that's what's, what's happened in the, in the state capitals. So this law was passed in the mid-1970s. And if you look at the growth in these health insurance mandates 
that we see, 1,500 of them in all of these state laws across the Union, um, we see the growth in these mandates take off beginning in the mid to late 1970s, and they continue growing uh, for the next 25 years. Okay. What's the connection? What's the connection? Well, prior to um, the enactment of ERISA, the, when a specific group came in to lobby the legislature to have a, their group uh, mandated uh, in an insurance plan, say chiropractors or acupuncturists, the large employers and small employers would combine and uh, present the political opposition to that because they would be paying the costs of that mandate. And their employees. Right. Indirectly and their employees the indirectly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Lower That's wages, right. presumably. You got it. That's okay. right. Better put. Um, well, after ERISA, the large employers left the market, mm. the political market. And now, since then, it's been up to the small employers to combat these narrow interest groups that are pressing for these mandates. And they have just been overwhelmed. You know, they don't have the political exactly, uh, exactly. Uh, economies of scale right. that you need to, That's right. to, to unite. Right. And at the federal level, there's been the same kind of pressure to have requirements in the federal market. Sure. Yet we have very, very few mandates in the federal market. The reason? We have had large employers being an important and powerful political block to prevent the enactment of these mandates. And so my That's view... a very of, interesting story. Yeah. So my view of, of, of public policy is, in many instances, you want to set up a political market where there's a level playing field between all of the competitors mm-hmm. in that political market. Uh, and you don't want to set up an unbalanced uh, system uh, and what we did with ERISA is, in some sense, create an unbalanced system. But we can't, we can't, in some sense, be uh, be trying to uh, tilt the market uh, one way or the other. We should have a balanced, balanced market. And I think the, the founding fathers would have agreed to that and, and let the let them fight it out in that in that political market. Um, and so what I say is maybe we should have a little a greater dose of uh, of uh, governmental competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, by allowing small employers and individuals to have an alternative to the state market. Let them, just as the large employers have, uh, have the opportunity uh, to purchase in a, in a federal market. And let's have a little bit of competition between state governments and federal governments as to which market would prevail in providing the lowest cost insurance uh, for the most individuals. Now, talk for a minute about the political challenges of that reform. Who, who's going to line up to stop that? And uh, so, so basically you're saying, what, it, let's level that playing field. Let's get rid of this distortion that encourages large employers out of the state market and makes state uh, regulation uh, special interest oriented. If we did that, that seems like a good thing. Who, who's going to vote against that? Well, certainly, certainly insurance companies and small insurance companies in particular are going to be against that. Right? right now, the way that regulation works in insurance at the state level is very similar to the way regulation tends to work at every level of government. Um, there's a trade that gets made. Uh, the, the insurer um, uh, limits the competition that's faced by uh, the insurance regulator uh, limits the competition uh, that insurers face. And in return, uh, the, uh, the uh, insurance company uh, gives up uh, some ability uh, to make profits. Right. And so you get rate regulation in return for protection from competition. Well, competition is not very good for insurance companies as it, as it, as, as it isn't for any uh, uh, producer of a good but it's darn good for the consumer. Right. All right. And so, um, and so we feel that, uh, that the insurers, especially the small insurers that operate in particular states, would be vehemently opposed uh, to, uh, to this type of policy uh, because now they'd be forced to compete with other insurers in other states. I see that. Right? You'd all, we also uh, uh, have heard from insurance commissioners. 
uh, in the states. Uh, of course, this would uh, remove some of their power uh, to regulate uh, the insurance sector. They'd be forced now to compete, if you will, with another regulator that's offering lower sure. uh, regulations. So the politics on this is a little bit weird. The federal government is going to expand, and if this were to pass, the federal government would have more autonomy, more authority. Right. But a senator from a particular state is going to hear from that state's insurance commissioners, that state's insurance companies who are going to be worried about the impact on them, and that's going to be where the lobbying right. fight takes place. There's another, there's another important point that I want to make here, and if many of your listeners probably have some familiarity with the law, maybe some of them are even uh, law students. Um, but one has, to, one has to ask, is the current way that we regulate insurance state by state, is that a violation of the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution? Uh, my belief is that it is. I don't see um, insurance as being different than any other commodity. And I do see that what motivates an awful lot of insurance regulation at the state level is protection of uh, uh uh, in-state uh, providers uh, of the product against out-of-state competition. And that's what the Interstate Commerce Clause was designed to guard against, uh, the ability of states to prevent uh, commerce free-flowing from one state uh, to the next uh, because of barriers uh, to trade imposed uh, by the states. And so we think it would be uh, at least an interesting exercise uh, for some uh, good uh, law school students uh, to maybe bring back this question of whether now in light of modern technology, the Internet, uh, whether it makes yeah. sense uh, to, uh, uh, to have a, uh, much more of, a, of an interstate market and, and get rid of this, uh, uh, this anachronistic uh, McCarran and Ferguson law, which is the law passed in the 1940s uh, that gave states uh, the ability to um, regulate insurance. More hope for the future. Well, we're out of time. I want to thank John Kogan, the author of Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, Five Steps to a Better Healthcare System, for a fascinating conversation on healthcare. Uh, there are other recommendations in the book. You, you've talked about the two biggest ones, uh, but there, there's, in addition to other recommendations for improving the system, there are a lot of interesting facts, and uh, it's a short book which I want to mention. It's a, a readable book. <laughs> I'm a fan of short books. Uh, it is 88 pages uh, and uh, has a lot of interesting ideas, a very provocative uh, treatment of this incredibly important issue. Uh, for more EconTalk, please go to econtalk.org, econtalk.org, where you will find other podcasts as well as links uh, about this issue of healthcare and uh, the reforms that we've been discussing. Thank you, John. You're welcome, Russ. Thank you.